Obviously, the eternal effects of our sin can only be dealt with by Jesus' reparation, right? Again, I'm saying the same thing from a different point of view. But that doesn't mean we cannot make amends or reparation for the temporal effects of our sins. And that's where penance comes in and that's where suffering comes in. There are many ways in which we can make partial amends or another term for that would be expiation. Expiation. And we're going to use that. We're going to talk about expiation in our study of Romans as well. Proverbs 16.6 6 says, By loving kindness and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. So even in the Old Testament, we have a scenario where human beings can do something to atone, to make reparations. It's not just us in front of a capricious God who will or will not cover our sins and blot them out so that he could stand to look at us. That's one view of justification that's out there. All right, that forensic justification, which means, you know, we're, we're so, Martin Luther said, we're so many piles of dung in a courtyard, and, and, and the, the good Lord allows a gentle covering of white snow to, to kind of cover us up so that he can stand and look at us. He's covering our sin. It's a forensic, it's a, it's a courtroom term. He's declaring us innocent, but really we all know what's underneath that snow. And that's us. Whereas the Catholic and St. Augustine and all the church fathers, their view is, no, we are regenerated from the inside out. So that instead of being forensically justified, just basically throwing a merciful veil over some grossness, we instead are renewed from the inside out and we are adopted as children. So you understand the difference in the concepts? We are regenerated, we are renewed, we are transformed. We are what? New creations. Okay, that's what we believe. And that plays into this idea of the temporal atonement. Because if all we are is piles of dung that have been uh, uh, mercifully covered up so as not to offend the sight of the eyes of the Almighty, then what can we do? How can we participate? But if we are children who are just trying to do the best they can, to, to love their father, to please him, and to make atonement and expiation for when they, go, when they do wrong. You see the difference in posture? That's why certain traditions have a more of a hard time understanding the concept of purgatory because in their faith tradition, they are only justified through a, a merciful tablecloth <laughs> thrown over something that's hopelessly corrupt. Whereas instead, the, 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 the main view is hey, no, we are regenerated, we are good from the inside out, and yes, we do fall. And yes, we do have a bent nature, and yes, we spend all our life fighting against sin. You see the difference? And so therefore, at that point, we can do something to help in our own, on our own behalf to expiate or to atone, okay? Now, let's review the um, scriptural proofs for purgatory. I think it's very important, and you may have those uh, in front of you. Now, if you start from the Old Testament, we have, we have some other instances in which we have uh, the idea of praying for the dead. But the first and most egregious instance, of course, is in 2 Maccabees 12, 42. If you'll remember, the armies of Judah have been in a serious war, and most of the soldiers who died 
uh, when it comes of Judas Maccabee's soldiers who die, when it comes time to go back to the battlefield and to pick up the bodies and take them to be washed and to be buried, are found to have around their necks sacred amulets to the idols of Jomnia, meaning totems, superstitious sort of, you know, idolatrous, you know, elements of idolatry on their person. What are they doing? I, you know, I grew up in Italy. You've ever seen... <laughs> They're hedging their bets, aren't they? You know, you see people who wear a, cru a crucifix in Italy, and you also see them around the crucifix. There's also the horn. There's a little gold set horn, very tasteful. But what is that against? Bad luck. Or the little eyes. You go to Greece and you see, and there's like mounds of little bracelets with little eyes, eyeballs looking at you. Well, that are, those originally are against bad luck. You see what I'm saying? I'm thinking that the, the amulets of Jamnia that the, around the necks of the soldiers may have been a little more serious than maybe wearing, you know, something against bad luck, but probably not too much more. You understand what I'm saying? So that their sin is not a mortal sin. It's just a sin of, you know, of, of ignorance or a superstition, but it's not something that would sever them from God. They fall asleep friends with God, but in need of purification. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So this is what Judah, Maccabeus, and the scriptures very clearly relate that he is basically applying the ecclesial remedy of his day. He's not coming up with something new. He's doing what everybody would do. He's, he's praying for them. He's praying for the dead, indicating that that practice of prayer for the dead was well ensconced and very, you know, common practice at that time and also up to that time as well. Judah and his men, it says in Maccabees 12.42, turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. Okay, these guys are dead. So what is he doing? He's praying for the dead. The reference to the sin being wholly blotted out refers to its temporal penalties, obviously. He knows that they have fallen asleep in friendship with God. Judah was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in, godless, in godliness, meaning, verse 45, that he knew that they had fallen asleep in godliness. And he believed that these men had fallen asleep in that state because he wouldn't have prayed for them if they had been found to be in mortal sin. Obviously, the distinctions between mortal sin and venial sin are not present there. But you see, there's, there's an acknowledgement of the difference. You see what I'm saying? So, if they were not in mortal sin, then they would not have eternal penalties to suffer, and thus the complete blotting out of their sin must refer to temporal penalties for their superstitious actions. So what does he do? He offers the then appropriate ecclesial action for lessening temporal penalties, a sin offering. So he basically offers sacrifice for them and prayers because he knows that they will be Efficacious. How does he know that? Well, obviously, he's following a whole tradition, a well-developed tradition of praying for the dead and of expecting that his actions will have a result. Now, if you go to, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a wonderful distillate of the scriptures of Catholic sacred tradition as mediated through magisterial teaching.
In Catechism 1030, all who die on God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified, which I hate to tell you all, is probably most of us. I mean, you know, if you're perfect, that's great. I'm glad. <laughs> so let's not like glance, you know, like your eyes will bounce off a page. That doesn't apply to me. Well, <laughs> I'm thinking it probably applies to all of us. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. This teaching is also, this is the next section, 1032. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, and then it quotes, of course, the section from Maccabees. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers in suffrage for them. Above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance or undertaken on behalf of of the dead. Catechism 1031, the church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect. You have to be elect before you can be purified in, in purgatory, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially the councils, and then it tells you Florence and Trent. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. And I'm going to give you a distinction between the particular judgment and the final judgment. He who is truth, who is who, who is, who is he who is truth? Jesus. Jesus says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but others in the age to come, which would be the age that happens after we die. Now, supporting passages. I gave you the passage, of course, in Maccabees in the Old Testament. We also have that beautiful passage in Wisdom, Wisdom 3, 1 through 7, which is one of my favorite passages. And it speaks about the souls of the just are in the hands of God, and no torment shall touch them. For if before men indeed they be punished, yet it is their hope is full of immortality. Chastised a little, they shall be greatly blessed because God tried them and found them worthy of himself. As gold in the furnace, he proved them and as sacrificial offerings, he took them to himself. And listen to this picture. In the time of their visitation, they shall shine and they shall dart about as sparks through stubble. Is that a beautiful picture of the saints catching fire. Then we go to the New Testament proofs. Matthew 5, 26. This is the Lord saying, Amen, I say to you, this is obviously the famous parable, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. Matthew 12, 31. This is again the, the quotation that I gave before about every sin will, be not, will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 12, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each will come to light for the day will disclose it. The day of what? Judgment. Of judgment, right? It will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. That is a reference to purification after death. If the, work stands that, if the work stands that someone built upon the foundation, that person will receive a wage. But if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. 
So what is he saying? Same thing, if you die in a state of, of something less than holiness, something less than perfection, you, your works, your imperfections will be burned up. And what's left will you know, have the chance to, to go to heaven and be with the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Hebrews 12, 22. You've approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and countless angels in festival gathering. And the spirit of the just made perfect. And Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will enter it. What's it? There's another section in, in the Hebrews. Without holiness, some will see God. A few chosen? No. No one without holiness, no one will see God. So where do we go from here? Well, the, the, I want to go back to one of the things that we presented before, which was the idea of ecclesial solidarity, the matter of the body together, the body of Christ being able to apply remedies for the souls in purgatory, okay, and how that happens. Well, in order to understand that, we have to have a good understanding of the communion of saints, the, co the, the concept of the communion of saints, and you can find that at Catechism 958, but it is basically, you know, you can see that in the parable of Jesus uh, when he talks about Lazarus, you know, about Abraham is up here watching him, and then there's the torments of the damned, and, and then there's the people living on earth. You can see the three elements of the church. The church glorious, that would be the saints in heaven. And of course, you know, the name of everybody who's in heaven is what? Saint. Right? It's not just the saints that we know of, not the canonized published saints, but, the, but all of us. When we make it to heaven, we will be saints. So it's the saints in heaven, the church triumphant, the church glorious. Then there's the church militant, the church that's down here in the trenches, slogging it out one day at a time, one hour at a time sometimes, one minute at a time sometimes, right? And that's who? Us, Us right? And then there's the church suffering. And the church suffering is the souls who are in the waiting room. The souls who are elect but need to have a few last minute changes, <laughs> a few last minute things, a little mud brushed off, okay? So that death does not disqualify you from being a member of the body of Christ, from being a member of the church. And that makes sense, right? So that having gone on, so the church isn't just us. The church is those who have gone before us, both those who are in heaven and both those who are about to be in heaven. You see what I'm saying? And we're all together a body, all of us, not just the ones who are alive in the body at this point. That's a very important point because then, then that explains that ecclesial solidarity. You know, ecclesial is just a fancy word. It means church, that churchly responsibility, that ecclesial, that all of our responsibilities as members of the church to pray for those who have gone before. That's our responsibility because they depend upon our prayers, right? So what a tragedy sometimes to go to some funerals. And, and the funerals end up being canonization. Canonization is basically a good old Joe. He never went to mass. He never went to church. He kicked his dog every day. But now he's playing on that heavenly golf course. Right? Have you heard that? Right? So are we doing Joe a favor? by canonizing him, what should we be doing for him? And, and you need to see that that's not because we're judging him. 
It's because this is a good way to hedge your bets. <laughs> and that's, hey, let's pray for him. You never know, right? I think he might be in heaven, but let's, let's just, you know, let's just, let's just go the safe route. Let's just make sure, right? So, in, so I just want to just kind of bring that up because that's kind of a modern tendency to canonize everybody who died. Well, I, I'm here to tell you that that's probably not a very prudent way of doing it, right? So, those are just my two cents anyway. So, um, speaking of the communion of saints, so that this is uh, from John Paul II in one of his Wednesday audiences. Purification is lived in the essential bond created between those who live in this world and those who enjoy eternal beatitude. So that the prayers of us in the church militant on earth with the ones, the, the, the glorious ones in heaven, create a synergy that help the people in the church suffering. See what I'm saying? All right. Catechism 958. Communion with the dead. In full consciousness of this communion of the whole mystical body of Jesus Christ, the church in its pilgrim members, that's us, from the very earliest days of the Christian religion, has honored with great respect the memory of the dead. And because it is a holy and a wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from their sins, she offers her suffrages, which is basically nothing more than an intercession for them. Our prayer for them is capable not only of helping them, but also of making their intercession for us effective. So that you can ask the holy souls in purgatory, why do we call them the holy souls? Because they're a little bit farther ahead than we are. They know where they're going. You know, until we close our eyes, our bets are off. Right? So we can ask them for their intercession. They are capable of praying for us, but they're incapable of changing their situation in any way. Right? So that they are in this state of purification, but they're burning with love as well. Okay? So there are people who would say, well, let's concentrate on exactly how they're suffering. I say, you know what? Let's leave that to the Lord. Let's trust him to give us exactly what we need to be purified in the shortest amount of time. Of course, there's no time. You do understand we're talking about a situation which is outside the space-time continuum. Why? Because God is pure spirit, and he too operates with all the spirits outside the space-time continuum. So we can't talk about days, and we can't talk about places, or months, or years, Right? And I'll be talking about that as well, because I'm sure uh, the old-fashioned way of talking about indulgences, which is what I'm going to be talking about in, on the next section, uh, speaks about, you know, you go to a church, you get four months, two days, and three hours off, <clears throat> off your time in purgatory, and you're going, you know, wait a minute, how does that work, you know? So let's not worry about that. Let's not worry about it. Let's trust the Lord to give us what we need. Let's do the best we can. Let's live in holiness while we're here, while we have a chance to affect what happens. Because we have been created for the Lord and we will go back to him because that is what we want. That is ultimately all the planes, the trains, the automobiles, the degrees, the children, the relationships, the careers, the, the wealth, the power, all the things that we seek that we think are going to make us happy are just pallid, pale substitutes for the real pearl of great price. We have been created to fit with the Lord intimately. We have this vacuum, St. Augustine says. And only a God, it's a God-shaped hole. And only God will fit there. And we keep trying to cram all these various things in there that are not fitting. 
And we wonder, hey, so-and-so had a gazillion dollars, and yet he just overdosed, or she just did this, or they're on their 15th marriage, or, you know. And you see all these people who should have everything, right? But if you don't have the main thing, you don't have anything. So that is what, that, that, that is kind of how, how we should approach it, okay? We shouldn't, I mean, you know, I'm here trying to give you specifics and chapters and verses and all that stuff. But in the end, it has to proceed from a relationship with the Lord that is a personal one and that trusts Him to do what is best for us.